0: My guest today on Deep CV Diving is London-based Lisa Marie Saccant. Until quite recently, she was the Chief Marketing Officer for the EMEA region for Norton Rose Fulbright, a firm she worked at for 15 years. Initially employed as a team support assistant, how did her career develop so fast? What did she learn along the way? And why did working hard eventually become hard work? Let's dive in and find out. Lisa Marie, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed by me today.
1: Thanks, Graham. I am so delighted to be here.
0: So I'm going to start by asking you my favourite interview question. So if we were to get a cross-section of people in the room who you've managed, who have managed you or you have worked with collaboratively, and if we were to say to them, collectively choose three words that would describe working with Lisa.
2: What are they gonna say? Collaborative, empathetic, leader. Leader,
0: what does leader mean to you?
1: It means creating a sense of team, getting your team all headed in the same direction it's being a clear communicator, it's being human, Uh, it's responsibility, it's decisiveness uh, and it's fun.
0: (laughs) I like the fact also that you describe yourself as empathetic and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later when we talk about some of your senior jobs but and, and where you've worked and stuff but what does empathy mean to you in the workplace? Being human. Being human. So let's talk about your first real job. When you um, you graduated, didn't you, with in event management? Yeah, I, mean, I did the party
1: degree.
0: Shall we? Shall we just talk about that? What is an event management degree?
1: Um, an event management degree is basically a business management degree with a large focus on events and marketing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So essentially. I think I was the second intake of this degree at Leeds Beckett and originally I wanted to go into hotel management and at the last minute I decided to change and I wanted to do a degree where there was a year in industry and it was a lot of fun but it also had a nice amount of serious business in it so I did business and economics as A-level and that really piqued my interest. My dad was an entrepreneur Um, So I think that business spirit has just been instilled in me from a very young age. But people have always been a huge part of my life and having fun and enjoying uh, myself. So it just seemed like a good combination of my personality and my
0: interests. Mm. Tell me about your first real job then when you left university.
1: Well, so where I did this year in industry, I was hired by an event management consultancy and they had contracts with big global corporates and a lot of professional services firms. Mm-hmm. And so we used to run their summer events, their Christmas parties, their leadership retreats. And they actually put me on a retainer for my last two years of my degree. So I worked for them term time up in Leeds and then during the holidays I went back and I helped out at the events and I was due to go back to them as a consultant as I graduated and unfortunately they expanded very quickly Uh, they'd acquired another business and they had to scale back and folded um, literally just as I was graduating so I found myself jobless Mm. and I decided to just put out speculative applications One of which was to the NSPCC, and they were actually just creating a new role for an events coordinator in their policy and public affairs department. So it was a government facing role, and the idea behind that was to help the NSPCC lobby the government to create change for children to better the lives of children. So, absolutely fascinating remit. And I stayed there for about 18 months, and then I decided I wanted to move on.
0: And so you went from a national charity to a global law firm. So I'm curious, your first day at Norton Rose, I'm I'm sure it was a million miles away from the offices of the NSPCC. So take me back to that first day that you started at, at Norton
1: Rose. Well, interestingly, on my first day, so I joined there as what was called a team support assistant, and this was a newly created role And it was a junior role within one of the practice group teams. It was sat in corporate and the role had been created because there was a lot of administrative responsibilities on the team leader who was a senior corporate lawyer. And there was a lot of marketing and business development activities that needed to be supported in that team. And the central marketing and business development function didn't have the capacity to do that. So there had been a restructure and 10 of these roles were created as I said, I was hired into corporate and I was working with the team leader. I had some understanding of how law firms worked, but it was quite limited. And it was on a personal basis that I knew anything whatsoever about law firms. So on my first day, I had my standard induction. And then I think at about three o'clock, four o'clock, we got sent to the teams to go and say hi and and to meet our new bosses, etc. And uh, my boss, a, a guy called Mark, I said to me, oh, so glad you're here. We've got a pitch in, um, and I'd just like you to set up a meeting with the global head of learning and development. And long story short, I was in the office until 10 o'clock that night working
2: What's on RFP <laughs>
1: with, with the head of uh, learning and development. So that was my first foray. I did turn up again the next day because I found it all very exciting.
0: Was there any moment where you just thought, how did I get here? And were you nervous or intimidated? Or
1: So how I ended up at a law firm was somebody who I was very close to at the time was working at Linknators.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was all of the benefits, if I'm honest, that attracted me to it. So charity wasn't very well paid. And as much as it aligned with my values and I felt good for, for doing things which were in support of others, I had an ambition to buy a house um i was in a relationship at the time and that was our goal and um i wanted more income and, and more benefits and part of the role of the team support assistant would be to organize receptions and breakfast briefings and cocktail parties etc so there was an element of events within it but the thing that was causing me a little bit of concern was how would i be with being in an office 5 days a week because mm. I'd been on site at events, I'd been out at clients, I'd been going out externally a lot, going mm-hmm. to venues and meeting with suppliers, et cetera. And so my only real nervousness was about how would I cope with being in the office for five days a week? And would I find that particularly boring? Mm-hmm. I had a really good interview process in the sense that I hit it off really well with my interviewers. There were three of them and it just felt easy. You know, they were they were very natural obviously it was quite anxiety inducing in the sense of it's professional services and you're in this big executive meeting room. And I remember they had a fridge with um, drinks in it and I thought it was fantastic. I was just so impressed by being offered a diet Coke um, that I was just like, okay, this is, this is amazing. But yeah, just, we, it was a good process Mm-hmm. Um, it was a rigorous process though, and part of the interview process was I had to rewrite a article on Islamic finance and I didn't even know what Islamic finance was at the time. So the terminology was completely alien to me in general. but in order to demonstrate my um, writing skills, that was one of the tests and you had to do that test prior to being interviewed. Wow. So I recognized that I was somewhere, where there were people of a certain calibre
2: yes,
1: and that there was high quality and high expectations, that's for sure.
0: I'm pausing the interview here to take my first deep dive into what we've heard so far. You can really see how her attitude to work was positive and open-minded from the beginning. From when she had to send out her CV speculatively, to being asked to write on Islamic finance in her first interview... To working until 10 o'clock at night on day one. This proactive and energetic approach will be a theme throughout her career and is worth noting. Let's return to the interview. Did you, when you when you had been there a few months, did you imagine that you would be there for 15 years?
1: Oh, absolutely not. But if we think about Norton Rose Fulbright as it now is, Mm -hmm. and the journey that the firm has been on itself over the last 20 odd years it has completely morphed from who it was when I joined way back in the early 2000s to now. So as much as it's the same firm, it's a very, very different firm as well. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really appreciate the sense of opportunity that was there in those very early years. But what I was very fortunate to benefit from was supportive managers and great relationships, which really helped to propel my development and ultimately the opportunities that I was afforded.
0: Mm, because you went, you were five years in the sort of team assistant roles, and then you moved into a practice group manager role. Um, yeah. Talk to me about how that came about.
1: So, one of the benefits was that every four years you qualified for a sabbatical. And so, as I'd come up to my four year tenure, I'd gone from being an assistant to an exec, an exec to a manager. And I took on much more responsibility for the day to day running of the corporate team. And at that point, I think it was about 70 uh, people in the team. So I went off to Australia actually on a sabbatical. And just before I went off, I was approached by a marketing communications agency for a relationship management role. And it piqued my interest because I had progressed three times throughout that sort of tenure that I'd been there for. And, you know, it's flattering when somebody approaches you about something. And so I spoke to my boss at the time and also the head of department, then got wind of it. And he he basically approached me and said, look, I hear you've got an offer from well, some interest from somewhere else. I know you're about to go off. If you haven't got time to have this conversation before you go, would you consider not making a decision until you get back? Because there's something I'd like to offer you. And essentially, he offered me to become his right hand person and to become the practice manager for the corporate function. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to retain, in his words, retain the talent within the business, could see that I had very effective relationships, uh, knew corporate quite deeply, and needed a new type of support himself because the person who was in that role was relocating to the Middle East. And ultimately, I decided to take that role.
0: What is it about you that made them feel that at that that sort of junior level-ish, you were indispensable? And, and secondly, when you said they knew that you'd built good relationships, how have you done that? And, you know, what skills have you got to do that, do you
1: think? My skills are I'm emotionally intelligent. So people are my thing, mm-hmm. which I think is how I've ended up making the decision that I've made and doing the exact coaching that I do. Mm -hmm. these days the partners talked highly of me Mm -hmm. I had effective cross-functional relationships I had to work very closely with finance with HR with IT with the central marketing and business development function and I have got a strong sense of purpose around being a team player Mm -hmm. so I like the balance of having autonomy but I really thrive in working with others And so when I was approached to do that role, I was very familiar with the head of the department anyway, because we'd be in a lot of strategic meetings together. We'd be looking at the performance and the operations across corporate in general. So I'd attend the team leader meetings. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of de facto in that position. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just basically my people skills.
0: Was there a point when you actually became interested in the business? So you said that when you first joined there, you didn't really know what a law firm did and you didn't really know the language. But it seems to me that you must have got to a point where you were actually quite invested in the success of the business. So at what point did you actually become genuinely interested in what the law firm was doing and what its goals were?
1: So I think as I got promoted from assistant to executive, I was taking on more and more responsibility for RFPs, so responding to pitches and proposals from clients. Mm -hmm. And they were a lot, a lot of the time, they were focused on equity capital markets and mergers and acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And so I was very fortunate in the team that I was in that people would help me to understand what these transactions or what these deals were, because they could see that I could add value and save them time if I improved my understanding. This was also in the heyday of m being absolutely through the roof. So this corporate team was high performing, high functioning, hard working and lots of fun. So there was a strong sense of community and that we were in it together. And so as I got more and more involved in the RFPs, I could see how that was affecting the financial performance of the business and then what we needed to do around recruitment and retention and because the team leader was such a successful lawyer, his default was to make me responsible for those things. So I ended up either taking on the responsibility for some of these conversations or being party to them. So I was put in a very trusted position by that team leader and then by the other partners, just by the responsibilities that I was given. And as I said, it, these were new roles So there was an interest from at the time the London managing partner as to how this pilot, it wasn't necessarily a pilot per se, but how this new way of doing things was working out. And over time, there ended up just being three out of 10 of us remaining in those roles. And the three out of 10 that ended up remaining in those roles were people that had full investment from their team leader and were given full authority to act on their behalf. So, yeah, my knowledge of the business and how it worked and the information that I was privy to was sensitive. But also, I'm not one of those people that abuses knowledge. You know, you get those people that think knowledge is power and therefore they use it politically. That That's not my style. Mm-hmm.
0: These environments, uh, some, they, they can be political, these environments, can't they? I mean... Highly. So how do you... And, navigate, and, and they are. How do you navigate that
1: then? It depends, to be honest. It depends on your strength of relationship. It depends on who you're dealing with. It requires good self-awareness. You also need to be clear. You know, I was always very clear. Is somebody talking to me as Lisa Marie or are they talking to me in the hope that I share this information back to my boss, whoever my boss was at that time, whether it was the head of corporate, you know, the global head of banking or the uh, managing partner? Mm. And so I was alive to that. And as, as I mentioned, you know, where I've got a good understanding of, of people and being able to read a room and read a situation, I think that helped me.
0: I'm pausing again because her point on politics and how to navigate it is excellent. And it's really worth reflecting on in your own place of work, asking yourself, are they telling me this for my benefit? or in the hope that I'll pass it on to others. Back to the interview. Do you think there's a correlation between you started off live saying that you might want to go into hotel management? And I'm often interested in people who've come from a hospitality background who've been very successful in law firm business services. Do you think there is a link between that sort of concierge approach that you might get in a hotel environment and using that concierge approach in a professional services environment?
1: Absolutely. And I think for me, it probably stemmed earlier when I was working in retail. So I was working for Marks and Spencers. And, you know, when you're dealing with customer service and you're dealing with people coming at you with different types of problems and behaving in different ways, you have to become attuned to how best to deal with people. And concierge service is something which is expected at times in law firms, but the way in which the business of law Has changed, has meant that that is no longer possible because of scalability and profitability and all of those other things. And it's about right sizing the resource for -hmm. the task. Mm -hmm. And that has been, I think, a significant source of tension, particularly in growth, you know, big growth law firms in particular. But it's really given me a sense of how to help people. And the thing about working in a law firm is. Lawyers are trained to minimise and perceive and understand and mitigate risk. And so when you're going to them and you're trying to lead and direct marketing and business development strategies I ultimately was doing as CMO, or even prior to getting to that level, when you're trying to influence transformation and change, you have to understand how to influence effectively when people are already highly skilled and adept
2: mm-hmm. at managing
1: mm-hmm. risk. In a particular type of way. And we could put all lawyers in the same bucket. But actually, there are things which differentiate dispute resolution lawyers to corporate lawyers, and so on and so forth. And I think the knowledge, the deep institutional knowledge that I acquired over my time at Norton Rose Fulbright served me very well because I not only knew the business intimately, but I understood the nuances around the geographies, the practice groups our growth areas, our strategy etc.
0: You said that when you moved into the practice group manager role it it then involved international travel. Yes. Uh, So talk to us about that part of your career.
1: So global practice management I was working alongside both the corporate global head and the banking corporate head eventually it started off just with corporate and so I would be responsible for communicating with the team leaders, bringing about change initiatives within each of the functions, bedding in new joiners, new offices, hiring partners. And then when we did a series of what we called combinations, which others may know as, as mergers, but we were a Ryan structure, I was, you know, part of the teams which would be attending the off-site meetings and looking at the fit of these different teams and organisations. And so, again, it was a highly trusted position. Uh, It was a very people-focused position and business-focused position. But what it meant and what the travel meant was that I could understand, yeah, the nuances really of the different locations, you know, how Frankfurt differs to Hamburg, how Hamburg differs to Munich, how Hong Kong is different to Singapore, and build those relationships up. To become more and more trusted by the team leaders and the heads of office in those different locations and ensure that to the best ability possible that our understanding of their context and their situation was considered when we were trying to bring about global alignment or or other change, you know, and when you've got at the EMEA level, there are 23 offices when you've got 23 offices, and you've got, you know, hundreds if not thousands or thousands of people you know and their views and the partnership dynamic and the partnership structure to consider it's highly complicated.
0: I'm curious to just dwell on this for a little while because we often place people in roles where they are responsible for many jurisdictions multiple offices etc but they're often working in a local office Um, where the partnership is very focused on what's in front of them how do you um, navigate a job where a lot of your responsibility is elsewhere and how do you communicate internally the different aspects and cultures of the firm so that they understand or you can impart your knowledge of what actually the whole culture is like not just the office culture
1: you have to be curious Mm -hmm. and you have to be open because if you go in with assumptions or you go in uh, with a very fixed view then you will miss things and you will not create the types of relationships that will be successful what do I mean about that is if you go in and it's you know big brother is watching or you know we're here from London and we're going to tell you what to do then you don't get the results that you want and uh, you don't Bring people alongside with you. And so I think that curiosity is really helpful to understand why things are the way they are and to bring about discussions around how do we bring things more closely aligned because, you know, structurally and organizationally, there is a desire, there is an expectation that we're going to do the following things. But you have systems, processes, structures, plans which are flexible enough to reflect. The local market so different markets as you know you know growing with what you do operate in in different cycles but there's lots of commonalities that tie us together and so it's about having that flexibility around when certain things go to market in certain locations what the culture is it was actually very consistent within EMEA so you could be in different offices but we had a common brand and you felt like you were in an autumn rose or an autumn rose Fulbright as it then became to be location and you create that sense of, of team and community. So, you know, we share what our objectives are and we seek understanding as to how they would best work in different locations or what support they needed as well. I think that's a big one. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I help you? (laughs) <laughs> not just i'm here to tell you that you know mm. no one wants
2: that mm.
1: uh, and what, you know what do you need from us
0: and where was your own personal ambition at, at this point because after just nine years you were appointed chief marketing officer for the It's mm. extraordinary i mean i mean let's think you walked in in uh, 2005 to be a team support assistant in a role that they'd only just created and nine years later you're Given the chief marketing officer role. But but, but before you were given that job, I'm just curious had your ambition changed at all being in that environment? Were you chasing the top job?
1: The answer is I absolutely was not chasing the top job. I have always been quite ambitious. Mm -hmm. Uh, I worked incredibly hard and I was known for getting stuff done. You know, my reputation was if, if you want something doing, ask LM. She'll get it done. And I was approached about the chief marketing officer job one late evening <laughs> and I was astounded. But I instantly said, yes, I am absolutely interested in this because in my mind, I thought I've read this article somewhere from Richard Branson, which says, say yes, and then figure out how to do it later. hmm. I had got to the point where I was looking for my next thing anyway. Mm. Um, And as I say, you know, I had ascended fairly rapidly and had been sponsored, you know. And one thing that's really important for me to, I guess, share today is that I was sponsored by men. And in a typically male dominated traditional environment, I think that was quite a difference.
2: Mm.
1: You know, we have a lot of disparity around women in senior roles in the workplace particularly in large professional services and other organizations and I think you know I brought certain things to the table but the the chaps that I worked for sponsored women to get ahead Mm -hmm. and it made a difference and so I said yes
0: and you did that for nearly five years or you did that role for five years we work with a lot of Candidates who aspire to be a chief marketing officer. So I'm just really curious what does a chief marketing officer do on a daily basis?
1: Prove that they're not a cost. <laughs> My key responsibility really was to lead and motivate um, and coach our very international, diverse marketing and business development team across 23 locations within EMEA. So I had three counterparts in North America, South Africa and Australia. And between us, it was our responsibility to align our functions globally.
0: Another quick deep dive here, because I think it's really interesting she didn't mention marketing at all. Instead, describing the CMO role as one of leading, motivating and coaching. And this is important to consider as marketing skills and ideas only take you so far When it comes to leading large teams, it is often the people skills that are critical for success. Back to the interview.
1: Spent a lot of time doing strategy development. So what was right for the EMEA market and how would we go to market in each of our different locations? We put in place a um, global client protocol and... um, client development function which I was part of the senior team that did that and so we one of the major projects was account-based marketing and relationship development enablement which was hugely transformational for the organization and is actually something I continue to do to this day in my coaching practice there was a lot of firefighting required because the business had transformed fundamentally And that tension which we touched on earlier around the concierge service and the global standardisation had become a strategic priority. And that meant service differed Mm -hmm. and that was a pain point. And also we'd got to the point where systems and processes and practices weren't always fit for purpose or best in class. Mm-hmm. But the organization was going through a huge amount of change and there obviously had to be global project management for what took priority and finance and IT systems needed to be robust before anything else.
0: Not a lot of it sounds like marketing.
1: No, Wow, so to be the a thing, chief
0: marketing officer.
1: I had a senior team of 10 and within those 10 there were subject matter experts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there were marketers, there were PR, there were communications, there was client developers. There was practice group business development, and so it was tying together the different elements of those specialisms, which underpinned the, the global strategy. Do you think
2: it's so, I'm
0: curious. Do you think chief marketing officer is the right title for that type of job in a law firm?
1: Do you know it's an interesting one because I've always said to people, don't worry about what your job title is. Worry about what it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So my remit was very clear. You know, my my job was to bring this, this team together and to move it forward to help the partners win new business, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And our global brand was managed centrally. So my devolved remit was much more focused on winning business mm-hmm. within the region that I was responsible for. Not so much directly winning business, I guess, supporting the partnership and winning that
2: business. Mm.
1: I also had a bit of a hybrid role in the sense that I was a trusted advisor to the managing partner because the managing partner had previously, I had worked with him previously um, in one of my earlier roles. And so we had a very strong relationship and, you know, part of what I would be responsible for would sit more broadly across the business. Yeah, so I don't know to answer your question. Do I think it's the right job title? Possibly not. Mm. But I think the thing about the CMO role is it's seasonal,
2: right?
1: You know, it, it goes with what's going on in the marketplace. Yes. So at some point, it could be digital transformation. Another point, it's around account based marketing. Another point, it's going to be based around the brand. And I don't believe that any one person is a subject matter expert in all of those, and I wasn't appointed for that reason either.
0: No, you were a conductor, um, really. You were, weren't you? Yeah. you. were appointed as a conductor, and so after 15 years, which is an amazing length of time to stay with a firm, you left. Um, talk to me about that decision process.
1: I was exhausted. I quite frankly burnt out, and uh, a number of things in my life happened in one go, specifically within a six-week period, and. Prior to that, I had noticed I wasn't my usual smiley, happy self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this had been going on for a few months. My sleep was poor. Uh, my health wasn't brilliant either. And uh, I stopped enjoying it. And when you've got a role like that and your beliefs are as a leader, you are responsible. I knew my responsibility was to let it go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I didn't have the same energy I'd had five and a half years earlier. And I wasn't showing up as my best self. And I adored my team. And I was deeply, deeply loyal to the business and to my bosses and, you know, my mentors, etc. But it was no longer serving me. So it was a very big wrench for me to say this isn't working for me anymore.
0: Was it a quick process or?
1: no no it really wasn't a quick process I think once I made the decision
2: Mm.
1: yeah but there were these beliefs around this is just what comes with the territory you're just tired you know there's been a hard run at you know there being significant leadership gaps in some of the regions so at the time we didn't have any coverage in Asia and I was back and forth to Asia a lot and when I wasn't back and forth to Asia a lot I was working Asia hours plus my normal hours. And I'm not putting it all on that at all. You know, we go through seasons
2: mm-hmm. where
1: you have to do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just, I just lost my passion. And I knew that I and my team deserve better. And it's almost, Graham, like when your strength becomes your weakness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I got to the point where I was caring too much and I'd forgotten myself. Right. And I was eating what I call ping dinners. I wasn't exercising. My sleep was horrendous.
0: Mm-hmm. So a vicious you know, I was... Really, it becomes a vicious cycle.
1: Yeah, you're on autopilot and you're just telling yourself, well, it's tough at the top. This is what happens, just crack on, you know, you've got holiday in a couple of weeks or whatever. Um, but then I never truly rested. Mm. But you know, a lot, your ego takes over a lot as well. And you're trying to wrestle between doing the right thing and not feeling guilty. And yeah, but do you know what my body just said you can't do this anymore.
2: Right.
1: And um, that was it. I was very poorly for a while.
0: At this part of the interview, Lisa Marie shares some personal experience that could be useful for anyone feeling like their career is not serving them anymore. We know that working in environments such as this can be relentless and that you must have resilience and energy and good health to be effective and enjoy what you do. Because without them, you run the risk of sabotaging all that you've worked for. I'm curious to know if you don't mind sharing how you went from being in a firm for 15 years with all those colleagues and you know the promotions and feeling part of something and being on their journey through the merger and all the rest of it to suddenly not working. Um, I mean, I know that you had a health issue, but then when you started to feel better, how did you did you suffer from status anxiety at any point? Was there any sort of sense that No.
1: I wasn't well enough to suffer from it, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I was exhausted, and it took me quite some time, it probably took me about a year yeah. to recover from everything that I went through, of which I've not really touched on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, during that time, once I started to feel quite a bit better, I indulged in a lot of self care practices. So, everything from acupuncture to, to yoga to hiking to working with the nutritionist, I just took stock of my life and thought, okay, what am I doing? And I need to get myself well, I'd had quite a big health scare. And so by by doing that, that just gave me energy to think about where next. But yeah, it, it took me a while to think about where next. And what I realised was as much as I was feeling better, I still wasn't back to the energy of five and a half, six years ago.
2: Mm.
1: So I wanted to do something where I could be effective, but there to be less impact on me,
2: Mm. which
1: is how I ended up in coaching, because it's enabled me to put in place brilliant boundaries, but still use those people skills, that emotional intelligence and all of that business acumen, because I principally work with senior leaders, founders, executives, and do it in a way that is thoughtful for myself, but effective. For my clients
0: and are you able to recognize that sort of burnout in others that you're working with and, and is that part of your consulting practice to sort of help prevent or acknowledge that
1: yeah so um I've developed a framework which has got three pillars to it and it's it's centered really very much around self-awareness self-belief and self-care Each of those pillars, basically, I believe, are the foundations to living well, living and working well. So if you're aware, if you know yourself deeply, you can understand your blind spots. And that's not just through self-reflective practices. It's actually talking to others, you know, people in your team, upwards, downwards, sideways. And you can start to understand yourself better and change your performance with self-belief. I think it's really difficult to expect others to back you if you don't back yourself. Now, one of the things I benefited from was in my moments of self-doubt, etc. I had, you know, global CMO as boss. I had the global director of clients as a colleague who had previously been in my CMO role. So she was very much like a mentor, too. They would help me to see my strengths when I was doubting myself. but. Building that muscle of self belief helped to sustain me at that level mm-hmm. but my self-care was fundamentally missing right so I put everybody and everything before me mm-hmm. personally and professionally and that wholly affected how I ended up showing up and was a, you know one of the core reasons as to why I burnt out and so Part of what I help people do is understand that self-care isn't a bubble bath or your favourite football game. It's very much about having the hard conversations. It's putting in place those boundaries around whether it be, you know, flexibility, working hours, delegation, et cetera. So it's, it's a full toolkit, really, to help executives work optimally, but also look after themselves mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic's changed a lot for many people. And we're going through this, you know, phase of now is the cost of living crisis going to force people back into offices because people don't want to spend the money or can't spend the money at home, et cetera. What's that going to do? And, you know, things are recalibrating for themselves, but I think we've been gifted change and it was well overdue change, but that doesn't mean it's easy for people to show up differently at work and be able to say, you know, what I need to do X, Y, and Z because depending on what sort of environment you're in, what relationships you've got, your own ethics and values, etc. I think all of that has an impact on on how people come to work and want to be at work. So yeah, there's a there's a definite focus on on well-being, um, but it's also around performance and effectiveness. You know, I had a fantastic coach myself and that really was the beginning of me thinking that is a very powerful way in which to work with others Mm
2: -hmm. but in a
1: way that maintains you know good good boundaries good health Mm. um, for me
2: Mm. it's
0: certainly working you do look amazing I wish everybody could see how beautiful you are (laughs) how healthy you look I'm curious to know what would 2022 Lisa Marie say to the 2005 Lisa Marie?
1: You know Graeme that's an interesting one because I've been through a lot of challenges in my personal life and every time the proverbial hit the fan in my personal life my professional life accelerated so there is a direct correlation for me between Things going awry in my personal life, like a broken engagement with a cheating fiancé and other wonderful things like that that happened. And then my dad, unfortunately, passing away when I was in my mid-twenties, unexpectedly, where work accelerated. So I don't know that I would change anything, but I would probably say don't forget yourself in amongst
2: this. Mm -hmm.
0: My final question for you is... It's been a pleasure to interview you for me personally today but I want to know what's the best interview question that you've ever used yourself?
1: I don't know that this is the best but the questions that I liked asking and I'm going to give you more than one sorry is how do you like to be managed because I think that's really insightful. Mm-hmm. It helps you understand the fit of that individual within the context of what they're going into. I would also like to know what do you need in order to be successful. I would be very transparent in interviews. And when I was interviewing with more junior members of my team, I think they were quite astounded as to how transparent I'd be. Well, in fact, I knew they were. And I think it's really important just to be clear with people as to what the reality of something is, mm-hmm. because you're going to save everybody time and you're going to hire the right people if you do that. And, and that's where, I mean, it's important to to be human particularly in these high performing environments another question would be you know what do you do if you're asked to execute on something which is fundamentally misaligned with your values
0: well that's a good one
1: and I think that's you know quite telling
0: yes well it's been it's a very quick
1: question but it's telling
0: it's been a very telling interview with you and I've loved it and thank you so much for sharing your career experience I'm pleased to say you've made the shortlist um and uh, i'm sure that the people listening will learn a lot from your own career journey so thank you so much lisa marie we wish you lots of luck in your business and lots of success
1: thank you graham it's been an absolute pleasure